From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to welcome George Schlatter to the show. George Schlatter produced a lot of great television and would be well-respected and admired even if he hadn't created the show that changed my world and yours, Laugh-In. And he's just written a book, and I loved it, even though I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> it's called Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy. George Schlatter, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. Every word in the book is true. What What is not true is what was left out of the book, which oh, is what uh, kept my marriage alive. <laughs> <laughs> that's the stuff I want to know. <laughs> it's been quite, it's been quite an exciting adventure, and I'm really glad. I mean, you you're you're terrific. You're a fan. You're much too young to be. Uh, <laughs> anyway, well, it's a reflection of your age that you think I'm young. <laughs> well, I'm still fooling. I just had my 94th birthday. Well, now, happy birthday. Nobody ever thought I would live that long, that's including cool. me. Yeah, you would have taken better care of yourself if you'd never. <laughs> no, but it's been an exciting adventure, and uh, it's good to see that I have fans like you. You're terrific. Well, I, I loved laughing. I want to talk about it in, in detail, but there's so many fascinating stories in your book and so many great legends of entertainment, and I didn't really know all the people you'd worked with until I read Still Laughing, A Life in Comedy, George Schlatter. And I I loved Judy Garland. I just think she was the greatest. And I know that when I I think I read that when uh, she was going to do her show at CBS, that there was no no one in the industry thought she'd be able to do it. That there was all the that's best. Right. That's right. And uh, but it was an adventure. And what happened was, uh, I've been doing the Dinah Shore Chevy show, and then they announced that Judy Garland was going to do a series, and I demanded i did everything i could to get the series and i chased mike dan down the street saying mike i should be doing that show so eventually he set up a meeting with judy and i didn't know i was going to meet judy it was like 11 o'clock at night in his office and he said come down to the office i want you to so i walk in there's judy garland i was amazed she's tiny you know i, I thought she'd be you know big woman tiny woman and i didn't i didn't know what to say i wasn't prepared for the meeting so i said I don't care what you may have heard about me. There's no truth to the rumor that I'm difficult. And she, <laughs> she looked at me and she said, you're difficult? And I said, see, even you've heard it. She said, <laughs> she said, let's go have a drink. My first meeting with Judy Garland lasted maybe four and a half minutes. We went out and had a drink. And on, it was an adventure. What a thrill. Wow. And and uh, I'm so glad that you, you did those shows because uh, I've seen them and I love them and and they're fantastic. By the way, you mentioned Dinah Shore. Are you the one who taught Dinah, told Dinah Shore to blow a kiss? Every no, day? no, no. It was that was the Chevrolet Chevrolet thing. Dinah was America's sweetheart, and as as lovely and and warm and easy and cooperative as Dinah was, that's how much of an adventure Judy was. So <laughs> had to so to have the two women in my career, and then come along Cher and Goldie and Lily. You know, so I've been very lucky female wise. My adventures with Judy went into all kinds of unbelievable things because she was an adventure. And if you could make her laugh, you could get by with anything. And, and, uh, um, so it was a question of making her laugh. So, uh, I, one time she, but she was explosive and she was, she could be very difficult. So one day she got very, very upset about something and she would get upset. And the secret was making her laugh. So she, she's upset and screaming or something. So I started singing over the rainbow. 
And she said, what the hell are you doing? Right? And she was tiny, you know, but she had this aura of it. And I said, I just thought if you were going to produce, I'd sing. And so, <laughs> and so she now storms off stage and she goes in the dressing room. And I figure maybe I'd gone too far this time, right? And so I go in, and so I got up on her coffee table and held a match under the sprinkler. And she said, what are you doing, you crazy? So I said, if you you don't apologize, I'm going to drown you. She said, apologize to you, you dumped you. I said, better apologize. She said, okay, 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 I'm sorry. So I get down off the bench, and I realize I've gone too far, right? So I get down off the bench, and I start down the hall, and she's chasing me. She pulled the lamp off of the table. (laughs) She's chasing me. Now, you can imagine, here I am, desperately wanting to do that show, having just offended her enormously, being chased down the street (laughs) with Judy Garland and a lamp. And so it just struck me funny. So I just collapsed and started laughing. She started laughing. And the whole adventure maybe took three minutes. But the secret to Judy was making her laugh. After you stopped producing the show, uh, did you ever see her again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what happened was uh, they they wanted, uh, I had a meeting with Jim Aubrey and everybody, and they, they we did like five shows in six weeks, on time, on schedule. And the secret was to make her laugh, and we would do them on time. She would come out, and it was an explosion. You had to do it one take. You had to be ready for her. And uh, uh, so they had a meeting, and they they didn't like what I was doing. They thought it was too special. I mean, with Mickey Rooney, and then with Judy, and then uh, oh, all these people that we had, right? And uh, uh, Tina Turner, <laughs> and and uh, they wanted it to be more like Judy, or like Dinah. And I said, I can't do that. So I got fired. Yeah. And they said they wanted her to be much more the girl next door. And I said, there's only one pe- person lives next door to anybody like that. It's <laughs> Judy's neighbors. I can't make her into Dinah Shore. So then they brought in Norman Jewess, and, and uh, he came in, looked at the shows, and said, that's fine. That's what she ought to be doing. The Judy, shows were exactly the same. Judy was an event. You know, Judy was bigger than life and, and louder than loud and, and funnier. I mean, she she was an event, and she was a, an adventure. And so... Uh, I, I cherish the times I spent with Judy and Lena Horne and Judy. And I mean, it was just, it was, and then Judy and Liza. Oh, uh, they, I mean, it was a great show, but uh, that's not what CBS wanted. They wanted me to do with Judy what I'd done with Dinah, which was impossible, Judy, you know, with two different people. Well, uh, I can see, um, my my listeners can't see, but I can see behind you that you have a great big picture of Frank Sinatra, and I know that you you knew him and you worked with him. I know you did some of his television specials, including one that I'm very fond of that's not around. You know, a lot of his TV specials, you can find them on DVD. But the one with John Denver, you don't, you can't find that one. Well, because it wasn't supposed to happen. It was uh, Jerry Weintraub was uh, Frank's manager, and he called me up one day and he said, George, Frank wants to do a show with John Denver. I said, boy, that's great, because you could not be more far apart the two personalities, too, so I said, great. He said, the only thing is, he doesn't even want billing. He wants it to be called John Denver and Friend. Mm. And if anything you say, I said, Jerry, please. I mean, I know the man. It's not going to happen. He said, anything you say, but one take. So I said, well, we'll do the best we can. So anyhow, he meets John Denver and Frank Sinatra. They met, and it was a wonderful meeting because Frank thought he was great, and John Denver was absolutely in awe. So we prepare this show, and so we lay it out, and they said, the, Played it for Frank. Frank said, I love it. That's great. He said, uh, what do we do now? I said, well, uh, um, we've played for I said, John has to practice. And Frank said, what do you mean practice? You mean like rehearse? 
<laughs> yeah, it would be like rehearsing. Yeah, he said, oh, yeah, okay, come on, John, let's practice. So we, <laughs> we go, they run through the medley, and it's great. It was like maybe 20-minute medley of all of Frank's songs. And uh, so he says, now what do you want to do? I said, well, John has to practice a couple more times. So he said, okay, come on, John, let's practice. So we get ready for this thing, and it's uh, agreed to be one take. And uh, I said, well, we'll do the best we can. Jerry Weintraub said, no, George, you don't understand. It's one take, 20-minute medley, one take with all of these songs. So we get there, and uh, it's supposed to start at uh, 1 o'clock. And uh, Frank says, why don't we go at quarter to one? I said, well, the the audience and the orchestra and everybody's cute for 1 o'clock. I said, I don't want to wait. Let's go quarter to one. So now we get everybody together to hurry up. <laughs> you can't imagine reorganizing this entire operation to start 15 minutes early. So uh, about five of one, he says, how late are you going to be? He used to call me crazy. How late are you going to be crazy? I said, you said one o'clock. You want to go earlier than that? He says, no, no, that'd be right. So anyhow, they come out, ding, on the crew, and they drop the baton, and here we go. And the medley, you cannot believe it. It was all of Frank's songs, and John Denver was in awe of Frank. Everybody was. But the medley is fantastic, except for one bit where they hit he hits a clam. It's not good. It's not good. It was terrible. And uh, so Jerry Weintraub said, don't say anything. Don't don't say anything to him. I said, Jerry, he heard it. It was a terrible, terrible. He said, but we promised him one take, one take. So everybody's standing around. Boy, that was great. Frank, that was wonderful. Everybody, whoa, wow, it was terrific. And I'm just standing with my arms crossed. And, and said, <laughs> well, well, crazy, what did you think? I said, huh? He said, what did you think? I said, I, I liked almost all of it. <laughs> oh, now you're into a war, right? <laughs> this is not, because I promised him one thing. So Jerry Weintraub says, uh, Frank says, did you hear it? I said, yeah. He said, was it bad? I said, yeah. He said, you mean to tell me you want to do it again? I said, no, I think maybe you want to do it again. Now the war is on because I'd promised one take. Everybody backs up saying, now Frank's going to explode, right? So he looks at me, and when Frank looked at you, it was like a long time. It seemed like an hour. It was maybe 10 seconds. He, he looks, he says, uh, all right, crazy, I'll give you four bars on either side of it. Uh-huh. Sounds good enough to me. He knew where it was, what it was, and he wanted to do it. did four bars, went over the place where he hit the clam, and went on. He said, that's it, good night. And he was gone, and it was exactly a half an hour. He could patch that in. Uh, and we put that in, but uh, Frank was an adventure. Frank was like living on a landslide, you know, but he was fun. He was, but you can make him laugh. Same as Judy. If you can make Frank laugh, you could do anything. And, uh, the secret to it was to be sure that what you, what you're going to do, it will make him laugh. And, uh, I had good luck with Frank. Well, I guess that kind of editing is not that difficult for you because you're the master of those quick edits, right? Yes, yes, yes. We woman by the name of Carolyn Raskin developed any all of the editing techniques that are now commonplace because we would. T- I mean, it was very, very complex operation at that point, but we could uh, edit laugh in like that in these little tiny bits and pieces. We actually shot it on film and then took the film, transferred it to videotape, and they did all these mini cuts. And uh, today it's commonplace; you can do it, but at that point it was impossible. It was revolutionary when you did. Yes, but that's it. <laughs> this is what got me out of the valley. This is a groovy life. This is a lot of fun. I may be black and blue before the season's done. In spite of chicken jokes, we're telling everyone that it's a socket to me. There. 
very interesting Cool, cool, laughing world Dog. We never get uptight We never hold a grudge If worry's in the way We give a little nudge We let it all hang out And yell, here come the judge Cause it's a socket to me Very interesting Cool, cool, laughing world I just wanna swing Is this the twilight zone? It must be outer space And lovely downtown Burbank Is the place Where ballerinas quack And run around the block And everybody says Knock, knock Gehört den Flinder? Gehört den Flinder who? Gehört den Flinder, said the fourth a man, a woman and a dog. <laughs> By Henry Gibson. The elevators work, but never up and down. We're wearing roller skates beneath the velvet gown. We think that Charles de Gaulle is really quite a clown. Cause it's a socket to me. Very interesting. Cool, cool, laughing world. My life is just like a tug of war. One big jerk after another. It is with a heavy heart that we continue. If we get really bored, try a nutty trick. If something lays an egg, we pull another stick. Is that a chicken joke? <laughs> we always end the fun by saying good night, Dick. Cause it's a socket to me. Very interesting. Cuckoo laughing. What was the question? Well, George Potter, I was a fan of a show that was on NBC. It was called The Man from Uncle. Yeah. And, uh, I never really knew what was going on in the show, but I liked it anyway. And uh, then one, all of a sudden, the man from Uncle was gone, and there was some other show in this time slot. This yes. show called Laughing. And I have to say that when I started watching Laughing, a lot of the jokes went over my head. Sure. But, but there was a, a something that def- definitely hit my teenage brain, and that was there were these two beautiful girls that got water thrown on them, and they were dancing around in a bikini. That that. Struck that me. would get your attention. That got my attention. <laughs> well, see, no, see, they didn't mind. Again, so much as you read the book, so much of my career, my life has been accident. And uh, uh, CBS had uh, Lucille Ball and Gunsmoke opposite uh, that time period. And they had nothing to put in there because, I mean, anything in there would be a disaster. So they said they wanted a show. And I said, all right, I'll give you a show. And uh, um and they said, okay, there was no money and it had to be done. And the only thing I could do is put together all of these crazy people that I'd collected over a period of time because they were not sitcom people. They were not, you know, regular musical people. They were characters. And so we put them all together and we came into the studio. We just started taping. Well, at that point, you couldn't tape bits and pieces. You had to tape long five minutes, six minutes, whatever. And Laughing was a, made up of 20 second pieces. And uh, so that's when Carolyn Raskin came in and developed these editing techniques. And uh, when NBC looked at it, they said, well, this isn't a show. This is a, I said, yes, it is. They said, 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 but it doesn't make sense. I said, right. That's what the whole point. And so they put it on the air reluctantly, knowing they were going to get rid of it as soon as they could get a real show ready. But by the third week, people were looking and saying, wait, there was something happening. This Goldie Hawn, adorable woman is, Lily Tomlin with all of these characters and uh, 
Uh, and uh, by the third show, it took off. And, I mean, it sounds impossible. I mean, but I'm arrogant now. But if you can imagine me 50 years ago with a 40, with a 50 share, I mean, there was, <laughs> so we did anything we wanted to do and much of what they didn't want us to do. And they would say, you can't do this, you can't do that. And by the time they were explaining to me what we couldn't do, we'd already done three other things that we shouldn't do. And it was an adventure. It was like life on a, life on a landslide. Uh, but it was an accident. If we can, if we can focus and cherish and enjoy our accidents, uh, we'll live longer and we'll be more successful. And I've had a lot, a lot of accidents. Well, I, I, I loved laughing and, and I've, of course, looked back at it now. And I've also gotten older and watched a lot of other things. When Laugh-In first came on, I thought, gosh, it was really revolutionary, which it was. But I had never seen Hell's a Pop-In at that time. So really, it was, you were really doing vaudeville and burlesque. Uh, yes, that, yes, you know, all of that. And and one-liners and uh, uh, all of the people that influenced me, Red Fox and all of those people. Uh, but it was a combination of elements that had... The elements hadn't been done before, but they sure hadn't been done as a combination. And it was it was done that way because there was no other way to do it. And uh, it focused on my own minimal attention span. <laughs> we, we we presented it. And the network wasn't going to air it. They said, this isn't a television show. I said, we ran it. I, we ran it for a group of school children. I said, they laughed and they're brighter than you are, you know. So, so but they really put it on the air quite reluctantly. And, uh, um, and then, you know, Goldie was a, an accident. I mean, she, she, we had a meeting with Goldie and Carolyn Raskin went downstairs and said, there's a girl dancing on the Andy Griffith show. You got to see her. Mm. I said, I'm not using any dancers. I'm using, she said, see this girl. So I had a meeting with Goldie Hahn and she sat down and most adorable person I'd ever seen in my life. And she said, well, I'm a, I don't do comedy. I'm a dancer. I said, yeah. So we gave her an introduction to read and it was so screwed up because she was nervous and she, you know, and uh, so she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll do it again. No, Goldie, that'll be just fine. <laughs> and from then on, we never let her rehearse anything. And Lily came in with all of these characters. Lily was doing like nine characters. Well, it's impossible to do all of those characters in one show unless you do the laughing technique of these mini pieces. And and Goldie and Lily and, and uh, oh, boy. And uh, Buzzy, Joanne Worley. Yeah. Is, is this a chicken joke? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, uh, I had seen a show uh, at uh, a theater called PJ's in LA called The Mad Show. Yes, and a lot of the people on The Mad Show, I think, are people that were on Laughing. Yes, yes, yes. There was, see, it was it was like a desert. You know, everybody was doing the same identical show, and including me with Dinah Shore. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they'd come out and they'd do the ballads, and they'd have a guest star. They'd sit on two stools and chat, and then do a duet. Then they'd go to a commercial and do another thing. And it was wonderful. It was great showbiz. I did it with Dinah and with Pearl Bailey and with the uh, Red Fire. And, uh, uh, but you wanted something unusual. And, uh, and, and the fact is that there was nothing to put on the air opposite all of these hit shows. So we yeah. came in with a revolutionary adventure. It was not a show. It was an adventure. And yeah. they kept threatening to cancel it. And I said, well, if you're unhappy with it, why don't you cancel it? Well, no, no, we're just unhappy with some of it. I said, well, just cancel some of it then. <laughs> and, but it was a, it was a, it was a fight every week. 
Well, you, you were pushing the boundaries. I mean, I, I kind of think of you and the Smothers Brothers as sort of bookends of what was happening in the 60s. They were pushing the political boundaries and you were pushing the uh, boundaries of adult content, I guess you might say. Tommy was a good friend of mine. We talked, you know, long, not too long before he died. And, and uh, Tommy, uh, the difference was Tommy, we had the same political philosophy. Tommy was meeting the networks head on and I was much more devious. I came around the back door and we would do things they didn't understand. And then we would promise to cancel it or change it and we wouldn't change it and went on the air. But by that time we had a big, big rating. And I mean, I'm arrogant now, but if you can imagine me with a 50 share, you forget about it. And so Tommy, Tommy was meeting the network head on and I was coming in through the side door. And uh, Tommy was a good friend of mine and a major loss, but he, he, Tommy had a lot to do with ending the Vietnam War. He was politically intense. And, and then with these, these guys with the guitar and the bass up there singing something and the network, he would fight the network and then wouldn't deliver the tapes. And I love Tommy and I, and I, I'm so proud to have known him. I'm so proud of what he did, but we would we have the same problems with the networks, the network. He wouldn't give them the tapes. And that was his fight. I would give him the tapes when they okay. Then I'd change it before it went on. The, <laughs> so I think Tommy was much more honest about it than I was. Uh, but he was to be cherished. He was to be remembered as a true comedy revolutionary. And uh, I miss him. And I, I loved him. It was just, uh, but he, he added a lot to television. He could, first of all, he added a lot to television because he ran interference for me. I would say, I said, well, the Smothers Brothers can say that. Why can't I? The Smothers Brothers said that. I said, see, even you know. <laughs> so it was like, it was a constant battle. And uh, Tommy, we the loss of Tommy Smothers is a loss for uh, all of us. Well, uh, George Schlatter, I think you're kind of half kidding in your book, uh, still laughing, <laughs> comedy, when you said that you sort of apologized for um, electing Richard Nixon president. But his, his appearance on Laughing was was what really did well, help him, right? Well, what happened was we were doing the show and uh, uh, we it was it was hot. It was hot. And they, people kept expecting more and more. And so we're going to do the first show the next year. I said, I've got to do something that's going to live up to this reputation of being outrageous. And, and uh, so one of the writers, Paul Keyes, was a very close friend of Richard Nixon. He says, he says I can get Richard Nixon. I said, well, you get him from me too, because I didn't like him. <laughs> but, but putting Richard Nixon into a comedy show was unheard of. So we went over to CBS where he was taping a press conference and Paul Keyes convinced him to appear on Laughing, just saying, sock it to me. And we, he said, we, we, sock it to me. No, no, Mr. Nixon. He just kind of smiles. He sock it. Surprise. Yeah. Comedy thing is new for me, you know. And yeah. Okay. We understand. He did sock it to me. And we took that tape and we got out of there while the CBS uh, studio is full of his advisors telling him not to do it. We'd already done it. And uh, we took that tape to NBC and put it on the air the next week. And when people heard Richard Nixon on Laughing saying, sock it to me, surprised, they were uh, amazed and stunned and say, hey, this is a nice guy, which was a lie, you know. And so <laughs> I felt that I may have been responsible for having elected him and I've had to live with that. You know, he was not a bad guy. He was just a bad guy. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terrible. But you know, you tried to get Hubert Humphrey to kind of, uh, we tried Hubert Humphrey blamed not winning the election on the fact that he had done, we chased through Hubert Humphrey all over trying to say, yeah, do sock it to him. They were running against each other. 
Right. Hubert Humphrey had less humor than, than Richard Nixon. <laughs> Chase Humphrey all over the country, and he often said he lost the election because he didn't appear on Laugh-In. But everybody did Laugh-In, and uh, it, was a, it was a trendy thing to do, to be seen in the midst of that uh, barrage of hipness and uh, language and girls in bikinis and uh, little bits and pieces and we did things like we said, don't go away, we'll be right back. We went dip to black and came. said, see, we told you we'd be right back. The network <laughs> said, you, you can't do that. You just told the network to tune out. I said, no, I didn't. You sm-. I told the network to, my, to come right back. And so that was that was a big fight, saying, uh, don't go away, we'll be right back. See, what I miss now in television, I mean, everybody's wearing, uh, everybody's wearing dark clothes because it's easier to light, and everybody's doing longer sketches because it's easier to write. And, and it it just it misses the adventure. It misses the fun. It misses the the danger. Uh, and laughing was dangerous because uh, you know we we did political figures and we did William Buckley, and uh, then we had uh, Lily Tomlin introducing us as William F- Buckley. Is this Mister F- Buckley? And the network said, "Why do you do that? It's a lie." I said, "What?" They said, "Well, what? Why?" <laughs> I've always had trouble with the F word. So William F- Buckley, and, uh, he came on and he, he had a good time and he was funny. Uh, uh, and uh, William F- Buckley, I loved that. But everybody who was anybody kind of wanted to do the show because it was the doorway into hipness, into a uh, passageway into the youth movement. And yeah. I miss that now. I miss the feeling of adventure everything looks the same you know you have that wonderful colored background and <laughs> you you are an unusual freak of nature in television right <laughs> first first of all you've done a lot of research which is for, forbidden now but uh uh william well, I, I read your book and i lived a life in which laughing exists. i'm glad i'm glad <laughs> but i want to ask you about uh um, rowan and martin in in your book you talk about uh, Rowan and Martin, and I guess they fit into the tradition of comedy teams like Martin and Lewis and Abbott yeah. and Costello, who don't well, particularly N- like <laughs> NBC wanted a host, and I said, but the show I've designed that you want to do doesn't have a host. And so uh, Timex, one of them, Jim Ellers was head of Timex at that point, he said, yeah, but you've got to have a host. So Dan and Dick did a great nightclub act. They did a solo act. It was two guys, a straight guy and a dumb guy, you know, and, and uh, um, so we went to them because they interfered with the format less than anybody else. So when they came in, they were very straight. Dan was very, very straight, and Dick was dumb. And then into the in the midst of all of that tumult and, and uh, explosive material, these two great saloon acts. I mean, they did great, wonderful act. And uh, I'd done a show with them with uh, Edie Adams. Jolene was married to me and doing the Ernie Kovac show opposite uh, they were doing that show at one studio we were doing the this other thing at the other studio and there was rowan and martin so we brought them in because they interfered with less with the crazy format and it worked it worked and they 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 showed up and they did the show and then and it worked with them i don't know whether it would have worked without them but it sure did work with them and they just pretty much just introduced the straight portions and dick understood nothing and dan was very literate and very intelligent, and he showed up on time and read the script, and uh, and it worked. Oh, you can't you can't argue with anything that was that successful and that lucky, and it was both. Yeah, 
but uh, but they were both a problem. And then you're holding. You're well, they, they 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 didn't. They were not too sure of it, you know, because it wasn't what they really wanted to do. They wanted to do a straight variety show, and this, in order to sell it, I had to put them in it. But in order to put them in it, they had to adjust what they did. So it worked. All I know is that they would show up, do it, and uh, uh, then look at it later and. They would do like a 10-minute talk spot, and we'd cut it down to two minutes, and Gary Owens would come on and say, later that same evening in another part of town, and we would cut to the cocktail party. And it worked, and they were they were uh, cooperative enough not to get in the way and uh, intelligent enough to stay, stay in that crazy format. So it was fun. What you cannot argue with the success of the show, and whatever made it work, I'm grateful for Gary Owens was a wonderful addition to the. Uh, Again, Gary was an accident. See, because we needed an announcer. Well, you know, the announcers were announcers, and Gary Owens was not an announcer. He was a disc jockey, and so we had Gary come in, and uh, he would introduce the straight things. But he could only work until like nine o'clock in the morning because he was <laughs> doing a disc. He was doing a disc jockey show, so Gary would come in and he would put his hand in his ear. And uh, introduce whatever we needed to be introduced straight. And uh, uh, to have a deaf announcer was in itself a bit of an adventure. But it did work. You know, the the an announcer with his thumb in his ear saying later that same evening. And uh, more <laughs> of a friendly drove. And just go, you know. And uh, he was a lovely man. And he added a great deal because uh, he was one of the straight elements. You know well, who who was Morgul the friendly drill, or what was Morgul the friendly drill? It was just something we made up later. <laughs> the name and it drove the network crazy because they tried to infer that Mork had some kind of hidden meaning, and the Drelb was some kind of a perverted character. <laughs> so we we kept threatening them that we were going to bring Mork on, and they said, "What is where, where is Mork? Mork the friendly drill?" And see, so much of it was was an adventure. It was like an adult playpen. And I'm not too sure that that existed. Everybody takes everything too seriously today. And uh, uh, this was something where we would come into the studio. We would tape sometimes till 2, 2.30 in the morning. And uh, uh, if anything really didn't work, it became a must. <laughs> and uh, the feeling of adventure that we had then, I don't see on television now. Everything now is... Either, either too loud, too nasty, too angry, uh, and nobody seems to be enjoying the ebullience, the explosion, the, the fun, uh, the adventure. Well, of course, the variety show format is completely gone, and there's nothing like it, like there was in all those great variety shows that you did. Um, not just Judy and Ben Ashore, but you did the uh, Steve Lawrence show, in which you tell a story that I don't believe. But anyway, uh, I liked variety shows. I thought they were wonderful. They were wonderful. And everybody had hit records, and they came on and sang the hit record. And it was wonderful. They'd come on and introduce, and he would sing a song, and then they'd introduce the guest star, and they'd do a duet. And it was, But it was all the same. The shows I did with Judy and with uh, Cher and with uh, Dinah Shore and all of those, it was still the same format. And Laugh-In was a deviation in every way. Well you did a yeah. you did a special with Cher that I you know that I remember so well and yep. it's an amazing thing because Sonny and Cher had just broken up and divorced. And here's Cher doing this show with 
two of the greatest. It was one of the great musical events of television when Elton John and Bette Midler were on with. Yeah, that was her first show. But she, I did the show with Cher before they split up, and then it came in. The laughing had not gone on the air, and yet, so nobody knew what to expect. So I booked Sonny and Cher because I thought she was adorable. She still is. She's a major, major star, and she's an event. And I was in love with the act, Sonny and Cher. So we came in, and it was just going to be Cher. And so they, we did the first rehearsal, and they looked, and Sonny's looking through the script for Cher's song. Well, nobody understood. But I knew that at that point, Laffin wasn't going to do any straight songs. So uh, Sonny says, well, where's Cher's song? And I looked, Billy Barnes, who was a brilliant, brilliant writer of all the special material, I said, Billy, where's Cher's song? Well, we'd just gone through a month of explaining there was not going to be any straight numbers, and I was asking about Cher's song. And Billy says, Cher's song. I said, you know the Mountie number. I don't know. Where <laughs> I, I don't know where I came up with the Mountie number. He said the Mountie number. So we got said, "Oh yeah, it's in here. Come on, walk in." She said, "What the hell are you talking?" About? I said, "I write me a song." She said, "I write a song. Uh, you're a Mountie. He's a Mountie. And you're an Indian." And uh, uh, she says, "A Mountie number, right?" So Billy Barnes went out and in ten minutes came back with a Mountie number for Cher. <laughs> and, uh, she said, "Well, that's cute. I love it." And Cher, Cher. Cher is an event. And so anyway, she went on and did the first uh, straight number on laughing, but it was a Mountie number. <laughs> and, uh, but then, then I, then I wound up doing a series, which then they bought the series, Cher, and she would bet Middler and Elton John. And yeah, they, and I, did, I loved that show. It was a spectacular show. Fantastic. It was, it was one of my best things. And then Cher, Cher and Bette Midler together with Elton John. Imagine today putting that combination together. You can't conceive of that element, those elements together. And they did work together. And, uh, oh, it was great. It was great. That's why I missed that variety show format. There were so many great variety shows then. I mean, everybody had a variety show. The, oh, there One year, there were 17 different variety shows on the air. Even people with no talent had variety shows. Well, you you had to have some talent. You had to be either, either be able to sing, dance, do jokes. Or just be straight. I mean, Ed Sullivan had no talent. Ed exactly. Sullivan, but he presented people with talent, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. He uh, had trouble even introducing them. Yeah, but that was great. <laughs> See, mistake. If we can learn to cherish and enjoy and repeat our mistakes, uh, we'll live longer and have more success. And I, I featured my, my mistakes are what bought the house in Beverly Hills, you know? <laughs> well, you know, at the time that you were doing your shows, there was a thing that, you know, networks didn't ever talk about other networks and they didn't have guests from other networks and they didn't, they, they might say on another network or something, but you had, not only did uh, Dan Rowan appear on the Smothers Brothers show, but you had all kinds of people from other shows and other oh, networks. Sure. Oh, sure. Uh, 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 we, they would say to me, you can't say that. And we said, we could say that if we were on the Smothers Brothers show. And the network said, you're promoting the Smothers Brothers show. I said, wait a minute, look. We're in a time period that's an impossible time period opposite Lucy and Gunsmoke. The fact that we have competition is not going to be a surprise to anybody. So if we can have fun with that competition. So we did. We went on and we did. Uh, we said, uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. In the meantime, watch some of the Smothers Brothers or watch Pearl Bailey or whatever. And people would tune into the other network to see what we're doing opposite us. That became fun. It was like children in a playground. And uh, I mean, I'm a little old now to be referring to myself as a child, but 
It was children in a playground. And when you can imagine Goldie Hawn walking into the studio and uh, uh, I mean, the, the charm, the, the, the elegance, the uh, cuteness of that woman. I just saw a show where her daughter, Kate Hudson, uh-huh. was being interviewed. And I looked at Kate Hudson because I remember when she was born, you know, and uh, I realized there's magic in that uh, family, you know, and, and her brother and so forth. If you see the early Laugh-Ins, uh, Goldie is not as wacky as she later became. I mean, you kind of like let that take off. Yeah? Well, we featured it. I mean, we found out that the uh, um, we give Goldie something to do, and then Ruth Buzzy would stand next to the camera and go, <laughs> and when Goldie Goldie would crack up, and uh, so it would. The idea was to not let Goldie get anything done straight, and it worked because uh, it was uh, Goldie. Goldie's probably. One of the most articulate, brightest, br- most brilliant women in television, certainly on the show. And uh, but the trick was to do that to her. And they did terrible things to Goldie, and uh, just to make her break up. Because when, when Goldie laughed, the whole world laughed, and so we featured that. And that's a lot of what paid the mortgage. Well, not very many people win Oscars for their very first films, but Goldie won an Oscar for her first movie. Were you surprised that her career... Not a bit, not a bit. And in order for her to do that movie, we had to let her out of her laugh-in contract. And part of my problem with the network and with Rowan and Martin Silver was the fact that I let her out of her contract to go do that movie. There was no way to tell her not to, you know, because she was with all of those people. And uh, they just cherished her. She walked in to do a motion picture lot studio, you know, and she was there with Ingrid Bergman, for God's sake. Right. And, and they just looked at her because she's, a, well, she's still today is a magical personality. But at that point, this was 50 years ago, she was an event. She came in and would do anything perfectly, except we wouldn't let her do it perfectly. And the whole trick, the whole trick was to, to interrupt Goldie, do rude noises and uh, uh, drop scenery, everything. And she, uh, and her reaction to it was adorable, you know, and that's. You you mentioned in your book, uh, George Slatter, that uh, when George Burns was working with uh, Goldie, he felt right at home. She's just like Gracie. That's right. He he wanted to do a show and, and uh, Goldie, he was going to appear with Goldie. And uh, um, so we had a number with him that he'd done with Gracie. And of course, they rehearsed the number. And I said, uh, tape the rehearsal. They said, well, why? They said, Did we tape the rehearsal. So when George Burns saw Goldie Hawn, it was love affair. I mean, violins played. It was like a magical moment because it was Gracie reborn. And uh, they did this number that George had done with Gracie and knew the number. And Goldie hadn't quite learned it yet. So the first uh, rehearsal was a take. And uh, they then said, we'll do it again. We did five more takes. And when we got all through, Goldie came to me. She said, you're going to use that first one, aren't you? I said, oh, yeah, Goldie. Because I mean, <laughs> George Burns looked at Goldie Hawn like Gracie was reborn. And uh, uh, and see, Goldie was, Goldie's a great singer and a great dancer and a great actress. Uh, but the trick with Goldie was to get in the way of all of those many talents. And uh, and she's, she's one of the smartest people ever in show business, Goldie, and remains today. Yeah. Doing some wonderful things. And today, when I saw Kate Hudson today on the, the Good Morning America show, it's, it's Goldie. She's not Goldie, but you can see the, the bloodline is in there, you know. Um, so, well, see, Yes, go on. 
I don't know anybody in television or in movies that has had the fun that I had. I mean, that had enjoyed the process, and including the, the problems, including the cancellations, including the censor troubles and the sponsor troubles. But those troubles became part of the legend. Those troubles, those problems became, the problem became the answer. We would, instead of ignoring the problem, we would feature the problem. And, well, uh, you're, laugh, you're laughing now, but but was it aggravating to have the censors cause? Well, truthfully, it was wonderful. I mean, because they had they had censors, and they had they all came over, and, and uh, they would show up with these pages of notes. And while we were discussing what we couldn't say over here, we were doing what we couldn't say over there. And uh, I enjoyed the process because uh, we were in an impossible time period. With impossible, we had no money. And uh, so the the problem became the answer. And uh, the, the, the disaster became funny. And uh, uh, we had censors that were just going to, we put them in the home, you know, and... Uh, one adventure, right? The head censor came, new censors. Hermione Graviace, Traviasis came and he said, George, you you, you, you use the word caca. I said, yes. He said, well, you can't say caca. I said, why can't I say caca? He says, well, you know what caca means. No, I don't. What does caca mean? He said, well, you know, caca is like, uh, uh, like a, a doo-doo. I said, we can't say doo-doo either. Now, you can't imagine... <laughs> this conversation happening in front of a room full of comics with me straight with this wonderfully straight gentleman saying we couldn't say caca, doo-doo. And I said, we can't say caca or doo-doo? What is the matter with her? It's just two words. No, but caca, you know what that means? I said, well, I have the slightest idea what caca means. Anyhow, <laughs> so we were caca and doo-doo became a major confrontation with the network, threatening to not air the show if I continued to say caca. Uh, <laughs> And now you got you got to know me fifty years ago with my outrageous sense of humor and my irreverence and my existence in an impossible time period. We were opposite Lucille Ball and Gunsmoke. Forget about it. There was no way to get a rating. There was no way to succeed. And with all this group of unknown, because we had no money, so we had no money to do the show. We had no permission to do the show, and we were having a ball. And uh, I cherish those times. Well, when the, the show lasted a few seasons, six seasons, I think, was left. Yeah. And uh, did you feel it was time to go when, when it ended, or were you canceled, or how did it well, end? Well, no, it wasn't It wasn't canceled. It, was, it became, the problems became so insurmountable because we had, you know, Nixon in the White House, and we had uh, all of that. And then along came the Smothers Brothers, who I just cherished, because Smothers Brothers had more to do with ending the Vietnam War than anybody realizes, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, But the problems became huge, and then by then I was uh, uh, I was bored with not being bored, <laughs> so we tried new things. And uh, see, we we removed the adventure from television. I mean, I see dark colors and I see loud music and I see music that I don't understand and and singers that I don't understand. And, and I'm sure they're talented and I'm sure they're great. It's just not what I do. And well, I re- also remember your show, and I watched it the night it was on, uh, Turn On, and I thought it was funny. It was. And um, I don't think there was anything in it that was no really outrageous. The credits continued to run throughout the entire show. And when the, <laughs> when the credits ended, the show ended. 
And uh, it was only a half hour. It was a delightful half hour. Were you surprised that they decided not to air any more episodes? Well, I was I was st- surprised. I was stunned because I told them, they said they wanted to do a new show. I said, all right, I'll give you a show, but let's go for something outrageous. Let's go for an adventure. So turn on was a, a, a often used drug term, you know. And uh, uh, so we put together this group of people and uh, we delivered a show that had no audience and uh, it was totally mind blowing. It was uh, a- abstract television, but funny. And uh, uh, so the network looked at the show, and, and uh, they said uh, they weren't going to air the show. And I said, "Of course, that's that's the whole point." Yeah, cancel canceling the show was my idea. I said, "If you cancel this show when we bring it back, it'll be front page." And it was, and uh, uh, but I didn't realize that they meant they were. They were gonna really going to cancel it. But turn on, turn on was an invention. And what happened was part of my deal to accept any money at all as a payoff, I had to promise never to air it. And it was many, many years ago. And so now finally some children, some kids, whatever, students found a tape of it in the uh, museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, they found there were eight shows written, two shows taped. And when they came in and they said, no, you're, you're canceled. We're not going to do this show anymore. It was the fact that there was no audience, the fact that it was just a, all of these fast cut, multiple images, things that were impossible to do at that point. And so when they canceled the show, I said, yeah, right. That's going to be the main front page. I didn't realize it was going to be front page 50 years later. And uh, so, but now they've, they found some of the tapes. Yeah. So I understand these two kids got in the museum and uh, there's a place in, in Jamestown uh, where they were going to do a whole museum celebrating comedians which had never been done before so they came to me and said can i give them a couple of tapes of uh, comics do i have anything else and i said lady i have a warehouse full of else what do you mean i've got hundreds of hours of tapes some of it unairable so anyhow we we uh agreed to make this part of the museum and in the museum they have the tapes of turn on and when you look at it today it's fun and it's funny and it's playful but you don't realize, you can't understand what was the big problem. You, you did sense that there was some danger in it. But Turn On is one of my proudest accomplishments, although it was canceled midway through the first show. Right. Not only not only was it canceled, but it was canceled during the airing of the first show. During the airing. The guy in Cleveland, guy in Cleveland wanted to keep Peyton Place on. So when Turn On came on the air, he went on the air in Cleveland, from Cleveland, and said the remainder of this program will not be seen this evening or ever. And so the stations coming across the country began to cancel it while it was airing. And they didn't know why. There was nothing in the show that was really offensive. The speed of it and the irreverence and the energy of it was a bit overwhelming. It took your breath away. So One square who wanted to keep Peyton Place on. One play, And he called all the stations. said, we can't allow this to happen. It'll ruin the network. So the stations began canceling the show one after another as it came across the country. And by the, by the end of the first half hour, it was off the air. We had a, we had a premiere party at the Bistro in California uh, celebrating the show, which we didn't realize we were celebrating the premiere and the cancellation all <laughs> the same time. But the first and final episode. Turn On Turn On was the result of a, of a period in our history of television where adventure, there was room for adventure. You needed a guy that was crazy enough to try it. Yeah. And with enough chutzpah and enough juice to uh, force the network. And uh, that's how it got on the air, and that's what took it off the air. But somewhere, somewhere, somebody's going to be able to air it. Someone turn on. 
how, how did NBC feel about you doing a show at ABC while you were still producing a show at NBC? Was that a problem? It's always a problem. You know, they were, they were they, much of what we did at that point made the networks cross. Uh, first of all, our problems with the sponsors and our problems with the censors and our problems with the uh, products and, and uh, product mentions and so forth. All the rules that exist today uh, were created to prevent what we were doing. What we were doing then, but that's what made the feeling of danger. That's what made the feeling of energy of of uh, unexpected, the unpredictable. And today, you watch a show. You watch you watch uh, Saturday Night Live today. It's exactly the same show every week, just yeah. different material, but exactly the same form in the same place. And and so okay, that then it's fine. And I forty three years. I didn't you know. I'm lucky to have a show last 43 minutes, but he's had a, he's had a career out of doing this this show, and and uh, uh, but but I I miss. I, I think Glassman was the precursor to Saturday Night Live, and I think Lauren Michaels would probably say that that's true. Oh sure, well Lauren when Lauren came in, uh, he was in Canada, and uh, we brought him down from Canada. He came out to Burbank to uh, be one of the writers on Laughing. Oh, and he went right from the airport to Dan and Nick's dressing room. Never came out. <laughs> and he was in it. He's one of the greatest politicians in the history of the world. I don't remember, however, him ever writing one joke. But, oh, uh, no, he was, he, but he was the greatest politician in the world. As hey, look, he's had a series that lasted forty-three years. I was lucky to have a series that last forty-three minutes, so I can't argue with that kind of success. Also, I want to ask you about Laughing having a racially mixed cast, which was sure. very unusual in. 1968 wasn't it yep yep and and uh but racial the racial tensions at that point were uh intense you know and we had but we brought in sammy davis and he did things and we brought you know sammy davis and harry belafonte and lena horn uh, uh we broke the racial barrier you had a regular african-american you had a couple of african-american oh yeah sure sure and and they they we we just they accepted them as part of the cast we never even referred to it as racial right which is uh it took us a long time to get there now but at that point uh we had uh, a racially mixed couple it was just uh, you just cut to them and they were uh, at the party uh, yeah. they were part of the and what happened is we realized so many of those rules were there to be broken waiting to be broken and when we came on and we had mixed marriage mixed marriages uh, uh, nobody even questioned it because the success was so much that they didn't want to interfere. See, this is a strange interview. I mean, because uh, people, when you put this on the air, they're going to say, who was that wacko? But yeah. <laughs> uh, um, the the fun, the fun that we've had, I, I don't see, I mean, I see some of the people doing shows now. I think Norman Lear had situations where he had that kind of fun. Yeah, uh, but I don't see people enjoying the process as much as we enjoyed the process. I mean, and 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 the problem. I mean, one time Lou Wasserman, who was head of MCA, called me and he said, "We've got uh, 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 this this politician, and we want him to do a show in Vegas and become famous." It was Ronald Reagan, and he said, "We wanted you to book him into the Frontier Hotel." I was looking the shows at the Frontier Frontier Hotel, and my career in Vegas is part of what we're not going to get into and. In, interview because there were moments in my illustrious career in Las Vegas. But I don't believe it was best, best left not, <laughs> not investigating. But anyhow, so we booked Ronald Reagan and, and he didn't do anything. 
I said to Mr. Wasserman, he doesn't do anything. He says, it's not my problem. Book Ronald Reagan. So we book him into the Frontier Hotel. And we put him in this part of a group, the, the, the David, whatever the name was, five acts. And we replaced the lead guy with Ronald Reagan. And it was a song and dance act. Ready for that? And uh, when I looked Did at that. Did he dance? No. No, he just, he was there kind of hosting this thing. And it wasn't bad. It was just boring. And, uh, <laughs> so now, so now. I realized he had done a movie with the uh, bedtime for Bonzo in which there was a chimpanzee in the movie. Right. So I said, we'll book them as an act. And there were five of them. And they did the, an act, the Marquis and family, five chimpanzees. So we booked them as the opening act. And we realized that the show was only going to run an hour and a half. That act did 15 minutes, which meant that it ran too long. So they said, cut some time. And uh, I said, they can't, Mr. Reagan could not touch his act. This, you can't touch it. So I said to the guy with the gorillas, I said, we got to cut some time. He says, these are gorillas. You can't just say, hello, mate. Cut five minutes. He said, we're monkeys. They're gorillas. So uh, what we did was we did the uh, first 15 minutes of the chimpanzee act in the hallway. <laughs> and then after 15 minutes, we'd pull the plug and let the chimpanzee in and do the rest of the act. Well, the gorillas were a little amused and confused by this change of venue because half of the wall they're working to a wall and then half of the rest of the act they're doing in the saloon and uh, about the third night they came to me and they said Mr. Reagan has some friends coming hold the show I said you can't go to five gorillas and say hello mate take it from the top you can't do this so the act so anyhow shortly after he said okay start the show well you can't now take it from the top with the gorillas so we turn the gorilla open the door turn the gorillas loose and they're all over the place they're in the lights they're in the band they're you know the uh, uh, band leader had been flirting with one of the chimps who was about to try to consummate the relationship. <laughs> the and you cannot imagine the tumult, the 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 energy that was in this thing with five loose gorillas running around. And Ronald Reagan, before Ronald Reagan became president, Ronald Reagan was just a, an announcer. And uh, so now we let lock up the chimps and they said, uh, oh, and it was it was a disaster. I mean, I, I know I'm going to get shot. So the owner of the hotel says he wants to see me. So I go over and I said, look, I'm so sorry. I said, shut up. He said, that's the funniest thing I ever saw. Tell the monkeys to just do that. I said, <laughs> Mr. Kozlov, you don't understand. Those are not, they're, they're gorillas and they are loose in a saloon in Las Vegas. And it's dangerous to have them loose. He said, so all right, let them do their act and tell the actor to cut some time. So I had to cut time out of Ronald Reagan's act, for which he never forgave me. I wound up <laughs> friends with Nancy, but Ronald Reagan never forgave me for booking him into the Frontier Hotel uh, with five gorillas, <laughs> but it's part it's part of my part of my shady career, my adventures at the Frontier Hotel with the uh, Ronald Reagan and the five gorillas. George Schlatter, it's all part of this book that I don't believe a word of, and it's called "Still Laughing: A Life in Comedy" from the creator of Laugh In, George Schlatter. I, 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 strangely I, enough, strangely enough, there's nothing in the book that isn't true. Okay. that are not in the book, which are deliberately omitted from the book because not all of my past was that, you know, clean cut and beautiful and funny, but there were adventures in there that did not get into the book, which is just as well. I've been married 65 years. That's why. But what's in the book is uh, all the adventures I could tell. Well, maybe you'll come back and tell me some of the ones you're not. Anything. You and I will meet. We'll sit, we'll sit down. We'll have a bowl of bourbon and some vodka, and we'll sit down and I'll and I'll tell you what's not in the book. But what's in the book? What's in the book is true, and it was a, 
they wanted me to write a book. And I said, uh, they, they said, my first book, and next year I'm going to read another one, right? So I said, uh, I don't have, I can't write a book like that, but tell all detailed bios. So what I did is I sat down with Martha Bose, who was my assistant, and I just talked every day. I would come into the office and I would talk and people would come by the office and I would tell them stories. And she took all of those stories and put them together into a book twice that size, right? Then we started taking out everything we couldn't tell. And what was remaining was a book that's unlike, it's not a bio, it's not a, it's just a group of funny recollections. And uh, and I'm, I'm proud of the book and I'm delighted it happened at a time when people needed something to make them feel good. And it's a feel-good book. That's what I'm proud of. I love it. It made me laugh a lot. And, <laughs> and it's really an honor to have uh, gotten a chance to talk with you. Honor? Too. I don't know about an honor, but I mean, I, it's a pleasure. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you so much. Let's do it again uh, sometime. If, they, if, we don't go, if we don't go to jail because of this book, maybe we'll do another interview and I'll tell you some more stories. <laughs> That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.